Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 8th of May. I'm Robert Barwick. I'm joined today by Citizens Party leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. We have a special show today, Craig, because by popular demand, you're going to get to do more talking. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't take the comments personally, but they do tell me I talk too much on this show. So um, Craig's going to do, Craig's, I'm going to let Craig tell an interesting story on this show today. And the subjects we're discussing are Australia must stop being its own worst enemy and remember the Commonwealth Development Bank. Um, before we begin, I just want to mention that we're on a campaign to uh, address the economic crisis that we're in, which has uh, accompanied the pandemic, but preceded the pandemic. And what we're going to be seeing it is in a crisis in unemployment especially, that's getting bigger and bigger here and in the United States, etc. And what we have to do, of course, is get the economy back to work, but what sort of work? And the problem with our economy, one of the, what, one of the things that made us so vulnerable to a pandemic like this and any other crisis, as we discussed last week, is um, we stopped being a productive economy. We have to become a productive economy again. We're going to unleash the productive power of Australia. We're going to talk about that quite a bit. But to do that, you've got, you need to have institutional backing. And we propose turning the the one public bank in Australia, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, into a larger, more powerful national investment bank, um, an emergency national investment bank, that it can start backing industry that's ready to go, that just needs backing from Australia, and it can start backing infrastructure, right? Build, build projects, etc., that are desperately needed. Not just employment, they're needed for their own rights so we can become a more productive economy. So next week, Parliament sits um, and... Bob Catter, the member for Kennedy, is pushing the government to let him introduce a bill to do this. And this is something that they find hard to argue with at the moment, but we'll discuss in a minute the way they, you know, these politicians are pretty brainwashed into their neoliberal economics. But it's going to come, the engine for this is going to come from the demand from the people of Australia, right? So get on our website, get the instructions on how you can help um, mobilise members of parliament to support this not just federal members of parliament, state members of parliament, local councils, etc. The, the, the contact details are there. Get involved in this campaign and get involved in calling them, emailing them, etc. around this specific bill that Bob Catt is trying to introduce. All right? um, we, keep the detail, we, we publish the details of our campaigns in our weekly publication, the Australian Alert Service. This is available for free to people who call in to get a copy if you haven't had a copy before. What we go through on the show is elaborated in this publication, right, because there's never enough time in the show. So that, but that also can keep you involved in the campaign, all right? So feel free to call in and get a copy of that. So that said, let's get into it. Australia must stop being its own worst enemy. What we're talking about there is what we touched on last week. Um, we are a country that's a land of, when it comes to economics, a land of lost opportunity. And let me put it this way. While Australia sucks its thumb and whines about being taken over by China, we refuse to back our own industries. China backs its industries. Other countries back their industries. We do not back our industries in Australia. That has to change if we're going to fix the economy and turn around the unemployment crisis. Um, now, what's interesting is because the curve has been flattened, Craig, there was that the, the alarm 
about the pandemic has given away to, you know, uh, understandably more alarm about the economy, and that's mm -hmm. true. But the politicians just a few weeks ago, there was a general acknowledgement of certain things that went against the, the tide of economic history of the last 30 years. Politicians were saying, yes, we do need more local local production in Australia. You know, we, we were caught really vulnerable to things like, you know, um, personal medical equipment, etc. They were acknowledging that, right? They, they, they said we shouldn't be more so, so dependent on foreign imports for this stuff. But now the rubber is meeting the road and they're expected to deliver, what we're getting is the jargon again, right? So for instance, this week, um, Frydenberg gave a speech where he said, he was asked, oh, what are we going to do about our supply lines and getting, you know, becoming more self-reliant? And he said, oh, we've got to stick to our comparative advantage, right? And of course, that's the, those are the arguments that sold us down the river of free trade to get in the position that we're in. That's a policy, Robbie, that came from the British East India Company, the same policy you know, that brought us the slave trade, the opium trade and everything. Yep. But they see, that's the unpolitically correct thing to say. This is where this policy of comparative advantage means. It means you enslave your own people to third parties like banks, international trading corporations, like the British East India Company yep. of History, in order to impoverish your own people. Just stick to the one, just stick, we'll decide the few things you're good at, you should only stick to that. Which in our country, of course, is digging stuff out of the ground, mining. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the other one that comes up is people like Matt Canavan say it, the National Centre, oh, the government shouldn't be picking winners. Um, that's why you shouldn't have, you know, uh, the, the, the free market has to decide what Australia does. Well, um, our comeback to that is the government certainly shouldn't be picking losers, and that's what we've been doing, right, for way too long. Um, the, the issue of investment banks, though, is where they, they, they really start to react, right? One of them... Senator Scott Ryan said to a constituent this week, he said, oh, I oppose the idea of an investment bank because they expose taxpayers to substantial economic risk and loss. Well, if, well, well first of all, it's not substantial. Investment banks actually make profits. Um, but second, of course they expose taxpayers because it's the taxpayers, it's the government, it's the collective that can carry that whereas individuals can't. But because the investment bank exists, it unleashes the potential that otherwise wouldn't be unleashed. Private banks don't back these projects. We keep losing them. And that's what we want to talk about. Some of the things that we've been losing in Australia for too long because of, these, because of this thinking. We have, there's so many technologies and innovations that we've lost to other countries over the years. We've become a walking tragedy in this country. They can't find support here. So this is why I wanted Craig to talk about because... Um, Ironically, the CEC exists because of this problem, because of an experience that Craig personally had in the 1980s with this exact problem, and it led to the founding of the CEC. So, Craig, tell your story that for the benefit of the viewer. Yeah, I think it's important that people know where the CEC come from, Bobby, because we just didn't, you know, it just didn't happen. The fact is, back in the early 1980s, when I was about 22, 23, I mean, I was involved with a group of farmers. Uh, who were working with a preeminent soil scientist who'd come out from, from the America, from America in 1966. His name was Herschel Weichel. Now, he actually had a farm himself in Ohio, but he gave up. He says he couldn't, that small farms were not being supported in the United States. Now, this was in the 1960s, yeah. and nothing's changed in this country. So he came out, and he was the world's preeminent soil scientist, being trained at the Ohio State University 
1949. He was working under professors at that time that had a fundamentally different view of soil science than a lot of people do today. Now, Herschel's specialty was to literally add trace minerals and things to soils to boost their fertility, but he would do it in a way that, you know, classic uh, agronomists today would say, oh, no, you'll poison the soil. Right. Well, actually, we proved the opposite because I was involved with a group of farmers again. Actually, the same group of farmers went on to help us found the CEC. I wasn't the only person. Yeah, yeah. But because we ran into this enormous blockage of what I called uh, agricultural technological apartheid, whenever you come up with any ideas outside the norm, there was no support. No support from the banks, no nothing. I said, well, this has got to stop, right? Uh, and anyway, Herschel came out. We were working with him and we, did, uh, we were... Uh, we took on a farm in uh, in Harvey Bay. Now, this was an unusual farm because it was basically white sand. It's Harvey Bay in Queensland. Harvey people. Bay in Queensland, you know, yep. a place called Tugum. It was basically a farm with white sand and about a, a, a foot of organic matter on it. And that was very important. So not really conducive to growing crops, though? Well, it couldn't grow anything. Right. It could only grow Banksia, Robbie, which is basically gets nutrient from the air. Yep. So Herschel came and said, well, if you apply, apply this... These, these trace minerals to this soil, you can make it exceptionally fertile. Now, we had a lot of troubles and a lot of struggles and so forth. It wasn't straightforward. But, and I've got pictures here. You, know, you, you see here is Herschel in front of this, what looks like a moonscape pretty much. You know, the, the, it was white sand, basically. So we added the trace minerals uh, to the soil and we were able to transform things. Now, this was also in an area where you just used to get a huge amount of rain in the Harvey Bay area. Um, and the, the advantage of this soil was you get a 12 inches of rain and be on it by the next morning. So you weren't constrained by the weather in many respects. It drained away really fast. Yeah. yeah. But we were at a time, you know, we were, and this is what I really like about Australians. I mean, I'm sort of, when you come up with a problem, you solve it. Yep. Now, we had to find ways of planting seedlings for the vegetable crops. So I actually built this air seeder. Uh, I saw a model of one and I just built it from memory. And this allowed us to basically pick up small seeds with a vacuum and drop them into these seedling trays. And we seed millions and millions of seedlings like this. And I actually built a greenhouse as well in the middle of the bush from bush timber in, because we couldn't afford you know, the fancy steel and so forth. And we were just propagating our own seedlings. That's what I did a lot of. But by adding the trace minerals to the soil, Robbie, we were able to transform what was essentially a barren wasteland, which was regarded by the Department of Prime Ministry as useless soils into some of the most productive soils in Queensland. And we don't have that many productive yeah, you like, soils. You're not just growing crops. You're the, you like bragging about the quality of these, like the iceberg lettuce that didn't go rotten. Well, that's, that's yeah. The point is we were growing lettuces, Robbie, that were so big. Most people... When you pick lattices, sometimes they put 14, sometimes 12 in a box. We had trouble winning six and eight in a box. Right. They were so big. And the local store owners loved them because of the trace minerals that we're putting in the, the, and the balance of these things. Uh, the crops were stable, so they didn't have to refrigerate them. We could run the stuff on the shelf and they didn't go off real quick. And they, they made those comments to us uh, many times from yep. the shop owners in Harvey Bay. So we picked quite a few lattices. Uh, in one particular area, we... Uh, got the balance of the nutrients right to the point that we were uh, growing tomato crops, the equivalent of the main tomato growing area in Queensland, which was Bundaberg at the time, and, and sending them off to market. And we also ended up growing zucchinis and so forth. And what we actually did was took Herschel's technology and transformed complete wasteland into a very productive source. Now, it couldn't continue because we couldn't get the support, the capital. It was frowned upon. This wasn't supposed to happen. Um, we especially the DPI, though, which is the Department of Prime, the State Department of Primary Industries, also wasn't interested in backing this. Yeah, that's right. So I mean, this technology is not—I wouldn't say it's died out. Yeah. But the 
impulse of, of being able to grab hold of something that could transform millions of acres of our very poor soils in Australia into productive land has been, in a sense, lost. And you have to understand that in the United States, you know, they, they measure their fertility in terms of topsoil to, you know, metres, six, ten metres of topsoil. In Australia, we're lucky in most places to have half an inch, and that would be considered a lot. Yep. And that's where you grow, that's actually where the crops come from. So this, is, this has been my experience. Those same group of farmers went on to found the CEC because we said this has got to stop. And that was 30 years ago, and now it's come around to this point now yep. where that's, this is now the issue. And can I say I'm from Childers, which is just north of Harvey Bay, and I'm a member of the CEC because Craig came to visit our town and give a speech, political speech, and I thought I want to get involved in this organisation. And so, you know, our roots are in this experience, which is why we're so um, committed to turning this around today. Let's take a break, because after the break, I want to give some other examples of this same problem. Welcome back to the Citizens Report, where we're discussing Australia must stop being its own worst enemy. And of course, before the break, Craig showed how the CEC was born out of the work he did in soil science that, could, you know, that showed just how productive Australia can be agriculturally. Um, and this sort of technology doesn't get backed. And there's other examples, right? So I want to I give um, just two briefly for the rest of this topic. Um, so this week we put out a, a press release on um, the pent-up potential of Australia's engineering sector, just add funding. And we said from an investment bank. And that's what we talked about last week with this. Um, I had a really fascinating discussion with a high technology engineer here in Melbourne who said to me, look, we're giving away money. If you give if you, if hundreds of billions of dollars, just give $5 billion to 1,000 engineering firms, tell them they're not allowed to spend it on, on houses or, or fancy cars. They go to jail if they do that. It's just for their business. Invest, employ people, but produce something. He said some will fail, but 10 will become bigger than BHP. Right? This is the potential in this country. And he told me the example of a, a Melbourne firm um, that developed a compressor that, that revved at 10,000 RPMs without oil, and because oil is, makes it inefficient, um, it, took, it, had, it had a difficulty perfecting the technology, but it did. And when it perfected the technology, it couldn't get any backing. Along comes Canada's development bank, the Canadian government's development bank, which had a, an extra mandate for energy efficiency in this, in this um, modern concern about climate change, etc. They offered this man $90 million a loan of $90 million on the condition that he moved his production to Quebec. He did move it to Quebec. It became so successful, America poached it, and now that firm employs 2,000 people in Tallahassee, Florida, making this product that could have been being employed here in Melbourne, right? For Just solely for the lack of any backing. And this is what an investment bank does, allows you to... Um, uh, have, a, have a means whereby these kind of technologies can get back. Yes, some will fail, but the history of investment banks, they always make profits because um, uh, the, the, there's so much success in there and, of course, it drives the innovation, the productive innovation of your economy. With that sort of process, Robbie, it's important to realise that when you've got engineers and farmers and so forth trying to develop something, well, they're not experts at figuring out finance. They're not no. experts at knowing how these processes work. And you don't want them to be accountants. You no, want them to don't. think about but perfecting wanna, their technology. You want to liberate them. Give them the fun yeah. funding, as you said. Give them $5 million, like you're saying. But you need to have an agency who can step in on their behalf yeah. and say, look, this is how you do this. And so it's a good idea. We're going to back you. 
but we're going to provide you the technical expertise yeah. to help you get set up in the right way. Exactly. It's not just the money, you it's, have yeah. the infrastructure for that. I want to give another example, though, and we're going to, do, we're going to write this up next week, but this is fascinating. In, in 1985, the, the, the head of Australia's CSIRO, Dr. Paul Wilde, so he was, he was part of the radio telescope division of the CSIRO, but he was the head of the whole CSIRO. He took a train, tra train journey from Canberra to Sydney, and it took him four and a half hours. And he figured out that train went at the same speed English trains were going in 1850. And that inspired him to develop the concept that became known as the very fast train. And they put, uh, he was a scientist. They put so much work into it. Initially, they tried to, they tried to get it done as a public project, right? The, the Keating government just wasn't interested, no support there. But it was such a compelling idea. A private consortium got together. It included people like BHP and Sir Peter Ables to back this thing. Um, the, very, so the very fast train joint venture, it was called. Um, a lot of work went into it, detailed studies, feasibility, all the engineering, etc. This was a, 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 I spoke to a, another railroad expert this morning and told me, look, this is, this is an absolutely viable project. The route from Melbourne to Sydney is the second busiest um, flight corridor in the world, right? Of course, there's enough population. And there was only 15 million people when he first proposed this idea. There's now 25 million of us, most of them extra in Melbourne and Sydney. Of course, this idea is perfectly, is perfectly viable, but no backing at all. And because, and because even the joint venture fell apart because there was no um, public backing. Here's the irony. There is, it, it appears that um, in 1990, when the Chinese government wanted to look at a fast train from, their very first fast train from, Beijing to Shanghai. It was this work in Australia, on, on the very fast train in Australia, that inspired that they actually influenced their project idea. They, they, um, and, 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 you know, there were other ideas that would have influenced them well, like in France, etc. the TGV. But this also played a role in influencing it. And look what's happened. So, so consider that for a minute. China has gone on to build... The, 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 their Beijing to Shanghai was their first one. They've gone on to build 12,000 kilometres of high-speed rail using our iron ore, while we are still not off the ground with any kind of fast train in Australia, right? And again, this is, that's what I'm saying. This is the land of missed opportunity. That's what we've got to change. And with, um, with the right approach, with a commitment to do this, um, powered by a national investment bank, where the resources of the country are put behind these ideas, we can transform the productivity of this country and in so doing, create lots and lots of jobs, right? And the urgency of this has never been greater because of the, the economic crisis that we're in. So when we come back, we're going to talk briefly about the history of the bank that we used to have for this, which is the Commonwealth Development Bank. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. Finally, remember the Commonwealth Development Bank. Now, we once had an institution in Australia. I mean, we've had other institutions as well, but we actually had a de dedicated investment bank in Australia from, called the Commonwealth Development Bank, which started in the 1940s and was privatised in 1996. And I want to read you a couple of quotes about it by Dr Evan Jones, who's an economist at the University of Sydney, who saw the neoliberal decay of Australia. He, he, was, he watched it as a... As a um, I mean, he was fighting it for, for all those years, and now he's a, he's a fierce advocate of bank victims and does a lot of, lot of work there. So on, he wrote this on the website bankvictims.com.au on the 19th of July last year, 2019. 
But he, he, he said, who, the headline that's called, Who Remembers the Commonwealth Development Bank? And this is what he, how he described it. He said, The Commonwealth Development Bank and its antecedents was in operation between 1943 and 1996. It has now disappeared completely into history, but its memory demands to be recovered. The Commonwealth Development Bank filled a niche in dealing with the particular needs of family farmers and small business people. Such a niche must necessarily be filled by a public bank as profit-driven banks are not interested in the necessary commitment of personal resources and a, quote, non-commercial low-profit return. And that's the issue here. Not, they don't even have to make losses. They're just not prepared to make a non-commercial lower rate of return. So what happened was, in 1943, the Curtin Labor government started the antecedents of this. It was two banks, specialist lenders, right, for different parts. It was a mortgage bank department and industrial finance department. They started in 1945. In 1960, the, the country party, in which the great black Jack McEwen was a huge influence and really committed to industry in Australia, um, they, t they were part of the Menzies Coalition. They turned those institutions into the Commonwealth Development Bank. And then Evan writes, the survival and su success of the Commonwealth Development Bank in an adverse finance sector culture is of enormous significance in Australian economic history. The bank, through the skills of its specialist staff, lent to farmers and businesses that the other banks wouldn't touch. There was flexibility in loan arrangements during hard times. In spite of its marginal portfolio, the bank managed to return a consistent and increasing profit. By 1990, it had become very significant. It had $2.5 billion in assets and $300 million in capital. Right? Quite a significant um, investment bank. That was all destroyed thanks to the Campbell Report, which was put out in 1981 and demanded the privatisation of all these. Any public bank had to be privatised, and they used they came up with all this economic jargon about, oh, only the free market, only, only pure competition in the free market can ensure the efficient allocation of resources, right? What they meant was, that was all garbage. It meant we do not, we private bankers do not want to compete with a public option. And people should have known, when, you know, for, for a guy like Campbell to talk about the efficient allocation of resources, they should have seen through that straight away. This was the clown who was the first investment banker to back Christopher Scase. How's that for an efficient allocation of resources, right? If you're old enough to remember the 80s and what people like Scase and Bond ended up doing to people. Um, it was privatised in 1996, um, but it had been so important that in the election before that, which, which um, uh, Howard uh, won, in the election campaign, they actually promised to keep it, but of course they reneged that promise when they got elected. Evan Jones makes this point, Craig. He said, there are different segments of borrowers requiring different lender skills, and so sometimes you might think that we need different institutions. Some, you need, you need a, a, an institution that can lend to small and medium enterprises and farmers. You need one for institutions, an institution for investors, sort of like the venture capital type model that we've talked about with the engineers. Um, you need an investment bank for larger projects. This is precisely how we've structured our proposal for a, a full national bank called the Commonwealth National Credit Bank, right? Yeah, Robert, it's not just a matter of structure, it's a matter of intent. And you go back to the 1930s Royal Commission on Banking where Ben Chifley sat on that. He wrote a dissenting minority report. He made the very clear point that private banks are only interested in profit motives. Therefore, yep. you have to have a national bank in order to direct credit into the economy where it's needed. Yep. If you go and have a look at the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, I mean, they lent $15 to a, a blacksmith who lost his amble in a flood. Now, that right. must have been some flood to lose an amble, yeah. but under the, the Disaster Corporation section of that bank, they said, oh, he could approach the bank and said, I need 15 bucks to buy an amble. Now, that's how you have to look at it. The bank has to be there, 
or the lending institution has to be there to provide the finance based upon the increase of the physical economic output of the nation, not the private profit motive of yep. private banks. So we've got a national bank which is broken up into various divisions and it's, you know, it's available on our website to look at. Um, but the key, thing you, the key point you make with that, Craig, is that the industry division will be run by an industrialist, not a banker. Exactly. Because you need technical expertise on that. You have to have that. And yep. the point is not just a matter of technique, it's a matter of purpose. All right, well, Craig, thank you very, very much. I hope you enjoyed the extra speaking opportunity. Well. <laughs> I hope the viewers did too. Thanks for tuning in. Get involved in the campaign for the CEFC. Tune in for more next week.